Well, I've overcome a lot of a lot of problems this year. I've had some some ligament problems, lower abdominal problems, shoulder problems. Um, I really didn't think anything. I, I was so frustrated at one time. I was just saying, you know, I'm just going to get everything fixed. I have to get my shoulder uh, repaired at the end of this year. But I was thinking about going ahead and doing it because I wasn't helping the team. I went through a two for 52 slump and it was miserable. But it started feeling a lot better. I started putting the ball in play. I started not fouling off the pitches, but hitting them a little bit better. Um, and all of a sudden, my power came. And uh, I'm, I'm real excited about what's happened for me this year. I, I just want to show up and play. And, and at the end of the day, hopefully, I help the team. That was Ken Caminiti talking to a St. Louis reporter in September 1996. He was hoping to lead the San Diego Padres to the playoffs for the first time in 12 years. Since acquiring Caminiti, the Padres had come a long way. In the years before the Major League Baseball strike in 1994, the San Diego Padres were cellar dwellers in the National League West. The baseball-loving people of San Diego pined for a winner, and by the time Los De Rios Macarena was sweeping the nation in 1996, San Diegans finally got their winning team. Ken Caminiti was a big reason for the reversal of the Padres' fortunes and he quickly became one of the most celebrated athletes in San Diego. Glenn Erath was a morning show sidekick and writer for the Hudson and Bauer Morning Show in the 80s and 90s. The program aired on KFBM in San Diego, which at night was the flagship radio station for San Diego Padres baseball. Every morning, fans who had listened to Padres games the night before woke up to KFBM. Erath put his creativity to work in late 1996 combining the Caminiti and Macarena crazes into a song that is quintessential morning radio. Padre mania has hit San Diego, but it seems one Padre is getting most of the attention. Ken Caminiti he even has his fans dancing to their own version of that song that's making some people nuts. <laughs> Yes, it's the overplayed Macarena, but students at De Portola Middle School have given it a twist. There are the Caminetti goatees, and the words of the song have been changed. After years of slights in Houston, Caminetti embraced San Diego, and the city embraced him right back. But there was more to the story than met the eye during that run in the mid-90s and it would have far-reaching consequences for the game of baseball. This is Secondary Lead, The Rise and Fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or a review. And now, Chapter 6, Birth of a Legend. The 1994 San Diego Padres were bad. Under manager Jim Riggleman, they finished 47-70 and 70 in the strike-abbreviated season, 12 and a half games out of first place and six games out of third in the four-team NL West. The Padres had a young starting rotation anchored by Andy Ashby, Andy Bennis, and Joey Hamilton. Trevor Hoffman was solid in his first full year as the closer, and Tony Gwynn was hitting 394 at the time of the strike 
making a bid to be the first player since 1941 to hit 400 in a season. But there wasn't much else. Due to expansion and the rapid increase in the usage of steroids, the team's 4.08 cumulative ERA was in the middle of the pack in the NL and would have been the worst in the league just a few years earlier. Offensively, San Diego was 12th in runs scored and finished last in baseball in attendance, the only team in Major League Baseball which failed to attract 1 million fans. John Moore's purchasing the Padres signaled a new era in San Diego baseball, especially with ex-Baltimore Orioles executive Larry Lucchino joining the ownership group. Before the sale, GM Randy Smith offered San Diegans another ray of hope, although they might not have realized it at the time. The Chicago Cubs unwittingly did the Padres a huge favor by hiring Jim Riggleman as their manager for 1995. In late October 1994, Bruce Bochy, a coach on Riggleman's staff in 93 and 94, was named as his replacement. For the next 25 years, Bochy earned a reputation as one of the greatest managers in baseball history, winning three World Series championships and retiring after the 2019 season 11th all-time with 2,003 managerial wins. Brad Ausmus, who managed the Detroit Tigers and Los Angeles Angels after his playing career, recalls Bochy's strengths as a manager. You know, he related very well to his players. Players liked him, you know, so he, which helps. And so you know, if they disagree with something he did, they, they like him enough and respect him enough that it, it's not an issue. Across the diamond, it was more strategy. I used to love him. Watch what he did, what he made pitching moves, what he did, uh, the reasons behind it. I was so young when I was playing for Bochy. Mm -hmm. I wasn't smart enough to try and realize what he was doing. Um, I actually learned more watching Boach as I matured as a player and played against his team, whether it was San Diego or San Francisco, and watched what he did. Uh, but I learned more watching him across the diamond than I did sitting in the same dugout. Immediately after John Moores purchased the team, Randy Smith set about building the 1995 Padres into a contender. He got to work expanding payroll and building around the Padres' core. He re-signed infielder Bip Roberts to a two-year contract and swung the trade to acquire Caminiti and company. Jody Reed was signed to play second base, and the starting rotation was rounded out with the signing of Fernando Valenzuela. In the blink of an eye, San Diego transformed itself from a perennial cellar dweller to legitimate contender in the NL West. As columnist Gordon Eads wrote, the bottom line may once again be winning, instead of merely the bottom line. Winning was the best way to increase the bottom line following the 1994 strike. Many baseball fans were furious at the strike, and they were angry at both players and owners. Many fans stayed away from ballparks and droves for the next decade. MLB-wide attendance plummeted nearly 20% from over 31,000 per game in 1994 to 25,000 in 1995. It wasn't until the 2004 season that average Major League Baseball attendance rose above 30,000 fans per game again, and 2006 was the first year that attendance was greater than it was in 1994. If Morris was going to have a successful business operation as the owner of the Padres, he was going to have to put a winning team on the field. Not everybody around baseball was convinced that San Diego would come out of the strike a winner. Jason Stark of the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote in April that the Padres were the losers in the strike. He said, It's bad enough that they're a small market team with no attendance base and new owners. But now they don't have revenue sharing, and just after they made a 10-player deal with the Astros and acquired Big Buck Amigos Ken Caminiti and Steve Finley, 
plus five other guys. Oops. That take, though, was not representative of the general feeling about the organization. Many publications wrote in their preseason picks that they saw San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego duking it out in a three-way battle for the National League West. Finley, Caminiti, and Andujar Cedeno solidified the Padres' defense, a weak spot previously, and provided plenty of offense. We've got what it takes to go places, Finley remarked. For many years, the predominating thought in baseball training was that players shouldn't lift weights. That began to change in the 1970s, when Carlton Fisk notably was a proponent of strength training. Led by Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, the Oakland Athletics fashioned a cutting-edge weightlifting program in the late 1980s. As more and more players began to see the value in lifting, gyms across America acted as a conduit for steroids to enter the game. Dr. Robert Voy, at one time a physician for the U.S. Olympic team, summed it up nicely in 1996. He said, One has to question the sudden prowess of athletes. It may come from the weight room, but in my experience, weight rooms are where steroid use starts. The 1994 strike gave many ballplayers a chance to spend a lot of time in gyms, and it was no coincidence that steroid usage reached dizzying heights soon after. Ken Caminiti spent the 1994 offseason working out at a world's gym in Houston. One day, a man spotted him from across the gym, noticing that Ken was carrying a nutritional supplement with him. You want to take that stuff the right way? Let me start working with you on your diet, the man said. The man was Blake Blackwell, a former football player at Stephen F. Austin University. He became Caminiti's personal trainer, one of his closest advisors, and his best friend. It is important to note that despite all of the supplements that Blackwell put Caminiti on throughout the years, there is no evidence that he ever provided Ken with steroids. Blackwell did revamp Caminiti's diet and weightlifting routine, and the results were tremendous. In two years, Ken's leg strength doubled, and he added 100 pounds to his bench press while lowering his total body fat to 9%. I've never had anyone train as hard as he does. He'll get to the point where I have to hold him back, Blackwell said. He started Caminiti on a variety of nutritional supplements, creatine, bromelain, cat's claw, and milk thistle, to name a few. Ken carried around the bottles of pills and powders in a plain black duffel bag. It's my goodie bag, he said. I wouldn't go anywhere without it. Padres general manager Kevin Towers eventually grew suspicious of what else Caminiti was hiding in his bag. When the strike was over, Major League Baseball had a shortened spring training, and during that time, Caminiti got close to some of his new teammates, namely Brad Ausmus, Trevor Hoffman, and Scott Livingstone, the man who he was replacing at third base. You know, Cammy was, I think he was probably the first teammate I was around. Well, I, I take that back, because Trevor Hoffman did the same thing. Did a, a very good job of rallying his teammates off the field, whether it was to get a meal together, um, have a beer together, you know, more social interaction away from the ballpark. And Cammy was very similar. The difference was Cammy, Cammy had deeper pockets and always treated. Cammy was just very, he was very giving. He didn't really, he, he felt like the friendship was more important than the few hundred dollars he might spend that night. The, I should say the friendship and the camaraderie. That was more valuable to him than money. We were in spring training in Peoria, and we were kind of the four guys that hung out together, Austin, Hoffman, Caminetti, and myself. 
I did not really know about all this stuff in Houston. So we're sitting, we're in the mall, in the food court in Peoria. And it's hilarious. I think about this all the time. There's like four major league baseball players sitting in the mall and nobody even knows that we're there. So we're all eating there at the little table. And so the agreement had just been made, obviously. We're back in spring training. Well, before all this, you had to have a roommate on the road. This agreement, they said everybody can have their own room. So everybody's jacked. I mean, we're pumped. We're like, sweet, my own room. I can watch my own TV shows, you know, like, you know, I just do whatever. And we were all excited. So we're sitting at the mall, we're all eating. We got our heads and our plates of food. And Cammy goes, hey, uh, guys, you know that, you know, I've had a, some issues in, in Houston and so on and so forth. And, and that's pretty much all he said. And he goes, I really would like it if I could have a, a, a roommate this year. And Trevor and, and Brad and myself, we don't even look up for like, please, not me, not me, not me, because we wanted our own room. <laughs> yep. And nobody says anything. And I'm sitting his left and he turns, he looks at me, he goes, Stoney, how about you? I went, okay. <laughs> so anyway, we were roommates in 95. And uh, I mean, we were, we were close. Um, and it, it was, I mean, I love the guy. He kind of, he, he stayed to himself because the reason that he said that he wanted me to room or some, have a roommate was because of he didn't want people calling the hotel room because we didn't have like a lot of cell phones back then. It, it wasn't a big deal or I don't even know if they were out. But he would, he just didn't want people calling his hotel room looking for him and, you know, may have been some bad seeds that he knew from the past. and. Once we got to talking about some stuff, he would just say, uh, he, he would find out that I wasn't a big fan of all that stuff because I'd never done that stuff before. I still haven't done it, don't plan on doing it. And so he knew that. So there was really, it was actually kind of boring because he would, he loved baseball. He loved talking baseball. And I think he really, really wanted to stay out of the, the stuff that he had done before. And I can, honestly tell you i remember him leaving the hotel one time on the road just one time and he brought back this huge pizza other than that that was it it still sticks with livingstone to this day that that early on in their relationship ken was able to be that open with his problems it also shows how seriously caminiti was taking his sobriety at the time major life changes such as moving cities can be dangerous for newly recovering addicts Ken recognized the challenges that come along with the temptation of going back on the road and being exposed to people who might try to drag him back to his old ways. The 1995 MLB season got underway on April 26th, and as fate had it, the Padres hosted the Houston Astros in the opener at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego. An announced crowd of 41,961 watched the Astros beat the hometown team 10-2 with both Derek Bell and Phil Plantier going deep against their former team. Caminiti hit fifth for the Padres and went one for three with a walk and a strikeout. The next afternoon, 7,468 fans watched San Diego return the favor in a 13-1 blowout win in which Cami went two for five with an RBI. Ken was a notoriously slow starter in his Houston years, but through six games in San Diego, he was 11 for 25 at the plate and had seven RBIs. He maintained his hot hitting throughout May and was still hitting 315 when June began. 
he dipped into a horrible slump, with his batting average bottoming out at 269 late in the month. Ken caught fire down the stretch and finished the year with a 302 batting average. He led the Padres in home runs with 26 and RBIs with 94. Caminiti also paced the club in walks, slugging percentage, and OPS, was tied for the team lead in doubles, and was second in on-base percentage. He set career highs in all of those categories and also in hits and batting average. In September, Ken did something that no player had ever done before. On September 16th against the Chicago Cubs, he hit home runs as both a lefty and a righty. On September 17th, he did it again, becoming the first player in National League history and just the second in MLB history to switch hit home runs in back-to-back -back games. On September 19th, he did it again, this time as part of an eight RBI day against the Colorado Rockies in San Diego. Ken set a new MLB record as the only player to switch hit home runs three times in one season, and he did it in the remarkable span of four games. That record stood for one year. Ken Switch hit home runs four times in 1996, which still stands alone as the MLB's single season record. While the campaign was much more up than down for Ken, it was a season of fits and starts for San Diego. The Padres followed up winning four out of their first five games with a seven game losing streak, and they hovered around the 500 mark for most of the season. San Diego wound up 70 and 74, third place in the NL West. Their 23-win improvement over 1994 was the largest of any team in baseball. One of the low points in the season for San Diego came on June 3rd, when future Hall of Famer Pedro Martinez of the Montreal Expos took a perfect game into the 10th inning against the Padres. The Expos grabbed a 1-0 lead in the top of the 10th, but Bip Roberts led off the bottom of the inning with a double to break up the perfecto. Caminiti was in a deep slump at the time and struck out three times against Pedro. After his third strikeout of the game extended his slump to 0 for 16, he smashed his bat over his right thigh, an act of frustration that he became famous for throughout his career. He struck him out with a high fastball again and Caminiti got mad and broke the bat over his leg. <laughs> He's a tough competitor and he's so intense. I really like him as a player. He's a complete player. He just, he's a competitor. Montreal Expo's English language broadcaster Dave Van Horn had the call with general manager Kevin Malone offering his assessment on Caminiti as a player. A point of concern early in the season for Caminiti was his glove. He committed 20 errors in San Diego's first 66 games and ended up committing 27 errors on the season in 143 contests, the most he would ever have in a year and the second most in the National League that season. His total zone runs above replacement was negative 12, also the worst of his career and the worst of all 75 National League players who saw time at third base. Despite that, Caminiti was rewarded with his first Gold Glove Award by the Baseball Writers Association of America. The 1995 season was also a contract year for Ken. The three-year deal he signed with Houston after the 1992 season was expiring at the end of the year and he was set for free agency. The strike, though, threw a major monkey wrench into those plans. After the labor dispute came to an end, a number of free agents signed contracts that were significantly smaller than players who signed in the midst of the strike. Caminiti assuredly knew this, and on September 17th, 
agreed to a two-year contract extension worth $6 million, effectively giving himself a $1 million pay cut for 1996. When the 95 season was over, GM Randy Smith handed his resignation to Larry Lucchino, who did not accept it. Smith was, however, allowed to interview for GM openings with other clubs, and eventually accepted an offer from the Detroit Tigers. This became a problem for Caminiti, because as the offseason stretched into November, the agreement he and the Padres had reached in September was still not official. Two days before Ken would have had to have filed for free agency, the extension was finalized. Two years, $6.1 million, and Caminiti would have a player option for a third year. Resigning Ken was part of a busy offseason for new Padres general manager Kevin Towers. The club's former scouting director, Towers looked to build upon what Randy Smith had started the year before. He shored up first base by acquiring Wally Joyner in a trade with Kansas City. Ricky Henderson replaced Phil Plantier in left field, and veteran Bob Tewksbury came in to round out the starting rotation. The 1996 San Diego Padres were set up for a strong season, and after the disappointment of a losing record in 95, the team was determined to get to the playoffs. Publications predicted the NL West being a two-team race, with the Los Angeles Dodgers being the favorites over San Diego. It was speculated that starting pitching would be the key for the Padres' hopes of playoff baseball. What nobody saw coming was Ken Caminiti taking baseball by storm. Late in the 1995 season, the Padres acquired veteran outfielder Rob Deere. He and Caminiti hit it off quickly and became friends, bonding over their shared love of motorcycles. Deere lived in the Phoenix area, and one day during spring training in nearby Peoria, Arizona in 1996, he took Ken to the shop of John Covington. Covington was the founder of the Steed Motorcycle Company, and during the meeting, Ken decided that he wanted Covington to build a custom motorcycle just for him. Rob was a customer of mine for probably, I don't know, two or three years. I've done a lot of stuff for Rob, built him a bike and other custom stuff, and he brought a lot of other ball players by. But Rob brought him in, and all Rob told me was, this guy's a stud, so treat him right. I had no idea who he was, you know, because I didn't really follow baseball. And uh, we kind of hit it off because everybody swarms him all the time, and I didn't really know who he was, so I was just building another guy a bike. Throughout 1996, Covington was in contact with Caminiti as he built him a black and pink motorcycle, which matched the paint scheme on Ken's 1955 Chevrolet Bel Air hot rod. When Covington delivered the bike to him in San Diego, he was shocked to discover just how big of a celebrity Ken Caminiti had become. You know, it, it, it's got to get to you when you're there that, you know, without, without really asking for it, he became quite the celebrity. And everybody, you know, he couldn't go anywhere. We'd go to a meal, everybody would interrupt him, come and say hi, want a picture with him, all that kind of stuff. I don't think he was comfortable with that at all. A key development in the 1996 season for Caminiti was that he wanted to have his own room on the road. This was not the result of any falling out between Ken and Scott Livingstone, as the pair continued to be friends and hang out with each other. Likely, it was that Ken felt he was good now and could handle sobriety on his own. But he couldn't. That being said, Livingstone said he doesn't remember anything different about Caminiti and his personality that season. I never saw a change in attitude, never saw anything. I really didn't. Maybe it's I'm naive or something or didn't know what to look for, not educated enough in it, but I just kind of never really noticed anything. 
The Padres split a season-opening two-game series in 1996 with the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. Ken had three hits and nine at-bats, including a home run and four RBIs in the second game, a 7-5 San Diego win. After the win, the team had a day off on Thursday, April 4th, and began a three-game series against Houston in the Astrodome on Friday, April 5th. The first game of the series pitted Bob Tewksbury in his Padres debut against Houston's Darryl Kyle. San Diego got to Kyle in the fourth for a run and tacked on four more in the fifth inning. Jeff Bagwell took Tewksbury deep in the sixth to cut the lead to 5-1. to one. The score held until the bottom of the eighth, when the Astros put together a rally against Willie Blair. Derek Bell was at first base with two outs, and Houston was trailing by four. Left fielder Derek May slapped a 1-1 pitch from Blair into short left field. Caminiti ranged back from his position at third base and made a diving effort for the ball. Unlike the catch in 1993, Cammy couldn't come up with it this time. Instead, he landed hard on his left elbow and shoulder, tearing the rotator cuff on his non-throwing side. Despite the pain, he stayed in the game, just like he always did. The Astros rallied to cut the lead to 5-4, but the Padres' offense exploded in the ninth to secure a 10-4 victory. Caminiti recalled the incident to Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated in 2002, saying, For the next six or seven days, I couldn't lift my arm. I played for a month and a half in pure pain. Amazingly, not only was Ken in the starting lineup for Bruce Bochy the next day, he was the hero of the game. Cammy smacked a 13th inning grand slam off reliever Alvin Mormon and gave San Diego an 8-4 win. In fact, he played every day for the next eight days before he got his first rest of the season on April 14th. In that eight-game span where he was unable to lift his arm, Caminiti hit 324 with a home run and 10 RBIs. Despite the memory of playing in pure pain, Ken tore the cover off the ball in April. By the end of the month, he was hitting 343 and had already collected 13 doubles. Merv Rettmond was the Padres hitting coach that year. I didn't know for sure if he'd ever be a, have a great year because the bigger the situation, the harder he would swing. I mean, if the bases were loaded and one out, he was up there swinging like crazy, you know. Uh, the MVP year, the swings just repeated, just nice and easy, nice and smooth, long follow through. Caminiti's left side was his weak side that year, and he was hitting really good on that side. But his right side, he worked more on it because it hurt a bit to swing left-handed. The shoulder woes didn't seem to have an effect on Ken's defense either. On April 22nd, San Diego was on the East Coast, taking on the Florida Marlins at Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami. With two outs in the bottom of the sixth, Andy Ashby faced Marlins first baseman Greg Colburn. Ashby started him off with a curveball. Colburn smacked it down the third baseline for what looked like a sure double, but Ken made an acrobatic, somersaulting play to snare it in his glove. Then, from the seat of his pants while sitting in foul territory, he threw a chest-high strike to Scott Livingstone at first for the out. Colburn on the curveball, Caminetti, big-time play, throws from his goal, oh, my goodness, what a play! Every time he does another one, we thought he's made his all-time best and unbelievable. I can remember the ball being hit, running over to first base, and, you know, as I'm running to first base, I'm not looking at him because I'm sprinting to the bag, and I get there, and when I get to the bag and I turn and I get my glove ready, he, 
he is on his back. And then I'm like, where is everything? And like, where's the ball? Where's his arm? And then the next thing you know, this ball is coming over his hip. And I mean, pretty much hits me right in the chest. It was, I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it. Because it was, it was probably, I got to say, it's probably one of the greatest plays by a third baseman. And if people would have known the background of his injury, if you notice that play, his, his glove hand curls awkwardly underneath his body and kind of twists like this as he rolls over. And uh, that was his bad arm. That was his bad shoulder. And so that's why he couldn't get up because he had landed on it and rolled on it in an awkward way. And then, of course, you know, he puts his hat on and jogs off the field like it was nothing. And, uh, but, yeah, it was probably one of the greatest plays by a third baseman that I've ever seen. I mean, when you can throw it from your, from your bottom that far behind the bag across the field, that's impressive. Very impressive. It was the best play I've ever made, Caminiti reflected after the season. I've made some good plays where I like to go back and think about it, but as far as that play... I don't really know how I did it. It's a lot of fun sometimes to look at it and say, wow, I did that. Beyond the torn rotator cuff, injuries began to pile up for Caminiti. He suffered a groin strain in May that was so severe, doctors initially diagnosed it as a hernia and received multiple cortisone injections to ease his shoulder pain. The groin injury forced him to miss 13 games in May, and when he was on the field, the results were just not good. He wondered aloud if San Diego should place him on the disabled list, but ultimately, he talked Towers and Bochy out of the move, and the Padres simply played shorthanded for about a week. In addition to the cortisone injections, Caminiti admitted he was taking four Advils a game and a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory called Voltaren. As a result of his extreme anti-inflammatory use, Ken developed a mild abnormality in the enzyme levels in his liver. Blake Blackwell put Caminiti on Milk Thistle to help reverse the problem. San Diego kept rolling as a team, and by June 1st, the Friars were 35-20 and and had a six-and-a-half game lead over Los Angeles in the division. Then they fell apart. Injuries to Tony Gwynn and Wally Joyner, as well as a slump from Ricky Henderson, all contributed to a stretch where the team lost 16 out of 18 games and fell two games behind the Dodgers in the standings. In that time, Caminiti hitches 194 with five RBIs. He went 51 at-bats without a run batted in at one point, the longest streak of his career. Ken was hurting, and he refused to stay out of the lineup with the team already shorthanded. Sometime in June, Caminiti made a decision that he kept secret from the outside world until 2002. He knew steroids could help his injuries heal, and he wanted to do something to help get him through the season. Caminiti made the drive from San Diego to Tijuana, Mexico, and found a pharmacy. He bought enough of a steroid labeled testosterona to last him through October. At first, I felt like a cheater, he said in 2002, but I looked around and everybody was doing it. Now it's not as black market as when I started. Back then, you had to go find it in Mexico or someplace. Now it's everywhere. It's very easy to get. Ken started taking steroids and never stopped throughout the 1996 season. Not knowing the concept of cycles, where periods of use are followed by breaks, he ended up taking twice the amount of steroids that would have been normal. He took so much that his body stopped producing its own testosterone. Those around Caminiti either had explicit knowledge of his steroid use, or they had no idea at all. There doesn't seem to be much of a middle ground. 
so you never even had suspicions while you were playing that there was any steroids or anything like that with, with him? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I really didn't. I was just wild by the guy just athletically with everything. So nothing really surprised me to really go, Oh, he must be on steroids because he worked hard and he trained hard. I mean, and everyone knew he was taking steroids. One day I went up to him, I, he swung bad. And I went up to him and he said, don't worry, I know what you're going to say. Monday it'll be good. I meant Monday the steroids were coming in. And that season, I remember asking, because he came in at, before spring training when we were talking about building his first bike. Rob introduced me. And he wasn't that big. And then he came in a couple months later. It's huge. I go, how did you get that big? And he says, oh, I just work out. You know. So it was obvious to me that he was doing something more than just working out because in two months you can't turn into the Hulk. But he got big that year. Taking steroids made Caminiti feel invincible on the field and gave him as much of a mental edge as a physical one. And the results were immediate. When play began on June 25th, Caminiti was batting 268 with eight home runs and 32 RBIs, and the Padres were two games out of first place. Ken went 2-for-5 with a double and two RBIs in a 9-4 loss to Houston that day, which was the beginning of a tear in which he carried San Diego for the rest of the season. Ken batted 368 with 32 home runs and 98 RBIs while not missing a single game. Using steroids had a meaningful impact on Caminiti on the field, yet he was playing with fire. While taking anabolic steroids does not necessarily constitute a relapse, Using them in the way that he did throughout the 1996 season fits the accepted definition in the sober community. Even though by all accounts, he was still clean of alcohol and drugs during 1996, beginning a steroid regimen was the end of Ken Caminiti's sobriety. Steroids helped Ken play through incredible injuries in 1996, including his torn rotator cuff, lingering groin issues, a pulled chest muscle, and a bad back which sent him to a chiropractor. But all of those injuries paled in comparison to what he accomplished on August 18th, a day which cemented the legend of Ken Caminiti. The 1996 Republican National Convention was held in San Diego. So the New York Mets and San Diego Padres were in Monterrey, Mexico for a three-game series at the Estadio de Baseball Monterrey. This series was a big deal as it represented the first time ever that a regular season Major League Baseball game was played outside the United States and Canada. The Padres won the first game of the series 15-10, and the Mets took the second 7-3, setting up a Sunday afternoon rubber game at 4.05 p.m. That morning, Ken Caminiti was in trouble. On Saturday night, Ken went out to dinner and came down with food poisoning. Padres trainer Todd Hutchison visited Ken in his hotel room at 2 o'clock in the morning to drop off Gatorade and tell him to get to sleep. Ken didn't sleep at all. In the morning, he forced himself out of bed and struggled to shower, pack his bag, and make the bus. He was on the verge of passing out when team doctors hooked him up to an IV at the ballpark. Depending on the account, Caminiti laid on the concrete floor of either the training room, a hallway, or most frequently, Bruce Bochy's office with an IV bag suspended from a coat hanger on the ceiling. I looked at him and it wasn't pretty. He was white like a ghost, his hair messed, and I thought there was no way he was going to play, said Kevin Towers. It looks like he's on his deathbed, and I, I look at Bochy and I'm like, 
dude, do you not want me to play at all? <laughs> I mean, am I that bad that we got to do this? <laughs> you know, we got a guy laying in the room like this. And I'm like, man, we are really trying to keep me out of the lineup. <laughs> I mean, he was he was down for the count but I mean the guy just mustered up everything he was just a true warrior and he just wanted to play Bochi made out the lineup card and left a blank space next to third base at 3:58 p.m. Caminiti was still hooked up to the IV on his second unit of fluids when he told Bochi I think I can go two minutes before the scheduled first pitch he rips the IV out of his arm and gets ready to head to the dugout the doctors wanted him to wait so they could take his vitals again, but he was gone. He raced to the field, ran a few sprints, and quickly threw some balls. As Ken was doing that, Steve Finley approached Todd Hutchison and asked him for some eye black stickers to help with the glare in center field. The trainer applied them to Finley's face when he heard Caminiti shout something in his direction. Get me a Snickers, Caminiti said. But there was a large crowd on hand making a lot of noise and mariachi music was blaring on this 92-degree day. Stickers? Hutchison replied, thinking Caminiti wanted eye black like Finley. No, get me a Snickers! Caminiti shouted over the noise. As the top of the first inning began, Hutchison retreated to the Padres clubhouse and grabbed three Snickers bars. Joey Hamilton retired the Mets in order in the top of the first, and Caminiti came into the dugout and quickly inhaled two of the candy bars. San Diego did nothing in the first inning as well, so Caminiti led off the top of the second inning against Paul Wilson, a highly touted pitching prospect in the Mets organization. Wilson's pitch hit in the air to left center field, Lance Johnson looking back, way back, goodbye, home run, into the sea of white. Just minutes removed from being hooked up to an IV, Caminiti gave the Padres a one to nothing lead. As he rounded the bases, he was visibly struggling. It was still 1-0 Padres in the bottom of the third when Caminiti came back to the plate, this time with runners on second and third and two outs. Wilson's pitch hit in the air to right field. Lance Johnson going back, warning track, looking up, and goodbye home run! A three-run shot for Ken Caminiti his second home run of the game, his third of the series, and the Padres have a 3-0 lead. The lead was actually 4-0, and Ken would get one more at bat in the game, striking out in the fifth before he was removed from the game and had to be hooked back up to the IV drip in Bochy's office. It's one of those stories that people find hard to believe, but every bit of it is fact, says Bochy. Here's Ken talking about the Snickers game in his own words in two separate interviews. They took the IV out like right before four o'clock we had a four or seven game and uh they wanted to take my vitals and i said we got a four or seven game i gotta go out you know get ready and i ran one sprint through a baseball and started the game right in the middle of you know heat and everything and gosh i don't know if i ate the snickers before the first at bat or after the first at bat but i remember screaming for it because i haven't eaten like in 30 hours and uh um, I ran out on the field and, and uh, I just was craving sugar. And, and, and I mean, this actually went through my head. Nestle's Crunch or Snickers? You know, actually, I said, Snickers, you know, it's going to satisfy me more. You know, I, I need a Snickers. Give me a Snickers. King size. And I was screaming from third base, give me a Snickers. You never like tap yourself on the back, but I, I tapped myself on the back after that because I came to the ballpark sick, sick, sick. And 
two minutes before the game, I ran one sprint through two baseballs and hit two home runs. So, and then I couldn't make it the rest of the game. I only played four or five innings, and I had to come out because I was cramping up again. They put another IV in me, stuck some more bags in me, and for about four days after that, they had to monitor my fluids because I was just overheated. The story of Caminiti's Snickers fueled heroics quickly spread and elevated him to a quasi-mythical creature. No longer was he an all-star and Gold Glove Award winner who was hot at the plate. He was a superhuman, a baseball god, a front-runner for National League Most Valuable Player. For the rest of the season, Padres fans threw Snickers bars at Caminiti on the field, and he quickly signed an endorsement deal with the candy company. For the rest of the season, get me an IV and a Snickers was the Padres rallying cry. What's really funny is, is Wally Joyner because he's like the, the, the clown on the team. Well, <laughs> he had struck out three times straight. And after his third strikeout, he walked into the dugout, laid down on the uh, dugout floor. He said, give me an IV and a Snickers, you know. So. People wanted to know more about Ken Caminiti, who was shy about talking much publicly about his battle with alcoholism. Ross Newhan of the Los Angeles Times and Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated published lengthy profiles of him to feed people's desire for more Ken. They talked about his cars and motorcycles, like the 1973 Chevrolet pickup truck that was his first car and he still had, and the 1955 Chevy Bel Air that he restored to be one of the best show cars in America. He credited getting clean and sober with his emergence as a superstar in his mid-30s but one has to imagine just how heavily his steroid use weighed upon his mind. Even though steroids in baseball were starting to be written about, nobody seemed to make or even try to make a connection with Cammy. Richard Justice covered baseball throughout the steroid era. We just didn't grasp it, you know? And I've told people, like, I, I, get, I was in that Oakland clubhouse a lot, and you just didn't grasp what it did because McGuire and Canseco were big dudes. I would have said, you're not going to improve your bat speed. You're not going to improve your vision. I think the medical, the medicine, the science says you improve all those things. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, and look, look, and for a player like Ken, like Ken Caminetti, it's a really tough moral equation. One contract, you take care of your family for life. You don't do that contract, you uh, maybe you're going to end up being a nobody. As Caminiti heated up throughout the summer, so did the Padres. The eight to nothing win over the Mets in the Snickers game moved San Diego into a tie for first place with the LA Dodgers. The NL West was a two-horse race, and the Padres brought in a great reinforcement at the July 31st trade deadline by acquiring slugger Greg Vaughn from Milwaukee. After the trade, Vaughn was looking for a place to live in San Diego and Caminiti insisted that he come live with him for the rest of the season. That was the beginning of a trend that would continue of Caminiti opening up his home in San Diego for teammates to live during the season. The Snickers game was far from the end of the line for Caminiti in 1996. In fact, it was just the beginning. The Padres returned home the next day and Ken hit a grand slam and had a two-run single as part of a six-RBI game. Even Tony Gwynn was in awe. Commenting in an interview, the guy is amazing. Beginning with the Snickers game, Caminiti hit 399 with 16 home runs and 47 RBIs in the final 37 games of the season. But that wasn't enough to shake the Dodgers. San Diego was two games out of first place with three games to go, all against LA at Dodger Stadium. 
They needed to sweep to win the division, and the Padres won the first two games of the series in come-from-behind fashion and during the last game of the season, tied for first with the Dodgers. They had already clinched a playoff berth, but the NOS division crown and home field advantage in the first round of the playoffs was still up for grabs. On Sunday, September 29th, a phenomenal pitcher's duel took place. The game was scoreless into the top of the 11th inning. Steve Finley led off with a single against Dodgers righty Chan Ho Park. Caminiti followed with a base hit that sent Finley to third. Pinch hitter Chris Gwynn, Tony's younger brother, followed with a two-run double, which put the Padres up two to nothing. Trevor Hoffman recorded his 42nd save of the year to clinch the win and give San Diego its first division title since 1984. After the wild season, the Padres were gassed when the playoffs began. In his ninth MLB season, Caminiti was finally in the playoffs and had a strong performance in the NLDS against the St. Louis Cardinals, hitting three home runs. But San Diego was swept by St. Louis in three games, and the season was over. Three days after the Padres were eliminated, Ken had his torn rotator cuff surgically repaired. Doctors told him he could potentially be out until mid-June or July 1997 while recovering. Ken finished the year with career highs in every single offensive category. He was the first Padre ever to hit 40 home runs, and his 130 RBIs and 621 slugging percentage still stand as club records. Caminiti's 326 batting average was 24 points higher than his previous career best, and his 1028 OPS was one of the best of the decade. He took home the National League's Most Valuable Player Award by a unanimous vote and became just the fourth player in NL history to win unanimously, joining Orlando Cepeda in 1967, Mike Schmidt in 1980, and Houston teammate Jeff Bagwell in 1994. Three years earlier, Ken Caminiti was at the lowest point of his life. Now, he was on top of the mountain, beloved by all of San Diego and what remained of the baseball-loving nation. But even this peak couldn't change who Cammy was. After it was announced in November that he won MVP, he said, I never considered myself on this level before. I'm just happy to be here in such an elite crowd. This is a great honor. I got picked MVP for doing my job, basically. I did my job to the best of my ability and I got rewarded for it. But that hard-nosed style of play and years of abuse off the field would soon take its toll on the now 33-year-old superstar. On the next episode of Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti. A reckless playing style and steroid usage begin to exact revenge on Caminiti's body and injuries mount. The Padres make a World Series run in 1998, and Caminiti becomes a free agent for the first time and makes his way back to where it all began. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review, and spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram. Like our Facebook page and check out show extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of PurplePlanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Hey Caminiti is used with permission of Glenn Erath. I'm your host, Joe Basile. Thanks for listening.
one grabbed by Caminiti. Man, that's when you can hang a star on. It's going in. Goal! Grand slam, Ken Caminiti. Need a hero call on Caminiti. You can bet the man is always ready. Grand slamming, he's jamming. You can always count on Caminiti. From the left side, from the right side. Either way, his hitting has a bright side. Hey, there's a man that we know, Caminiti. He can dive, he can slide, and he's piling up the ribbies. The MVP playing here in our city. Hey, Caminiti. Hey, there's a man that we know, Caminiti. Hits a home run, and it sure looks pretty. Plays when he's hurt, because the man is tough and gritty. Hey, Caminiti. Now don't you worry about the line drives that come his way. You know the man dives, won't let them get by him. And at the plate, you know they won't deny him. Caminiti to his left. Oh, a great stop in between hops. Joiner grabs down on the bag and got him. What a great play by Ken Caminiti. Terrific play by Caminiti. Put him on third. Hey, the man is like a magnet. Hit a line drive and the man is going to grab it. Try to steal third. Better watch out because he'll tag you. Hey, Caminiti. Hey, there's a man that we know, Caminetti. He can dive, he can slide, he can drive in the ribbies. The MVP playing here in our city. Hey!